Acclaimed director Steve James and executive producer Martin Scorsese present Life Itself, a documentary that film that recounts the inspiring and entertaining life of a world-renowned film critic and social commentator Roger Ebert, a story that turns personal and funny, painful and transcendent. Based on the best-selling memoir of the same name, Life Itself, it explores the legacy of Roger Ebert's life from his Pulitzer Prize-winning film criticism at the uh, Chicago Sun-Times to becoming one of the most influential cultural voices in America. And it is just a truly wonderful film about a wonderful man, and I'm so thrilled and honored to have with us today the director of, among other films, Hoop Dreams, but today joining us to talk about life itself, Steve James. Steve, welcome to Film School. Uh, great to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, obviously, this was uh, a labor of love, life itself, uh, for you. Uh, getting uh, from the sh- You're from Chicago, as is Roger. Uh, what was the impetus for you to uh, decide to move forward with a documentary about Roger? Well, you know, the original idea came from Steve Zellian, the screenwriter, and his partner, Garrett Bash, uh, who, um, you know, who read Roger's memoir and loved it, and, uh, and then reached out to his literary agent and floated the idea. And, uh, you know, the, it, uh, Roger's agent was not discouraging. Um, I found out later there were a number of inquiries that came in, actually. And so, anyway, they approached me and said, uh, would you be interested in this? And I hadn't read Roger's memoir, so I read it very quickly and and loved it, uh, and said, yes, I would love to be involved. And so it, it, there was a series of, um, you know, emails at first back and forth, and then a meeting with Roger and Chaz, uh, where I talked about what it is I had in mind for it and why I wanted to do it, and then we did it. Yeah. Now, so that step of uh, getting a hold of his wife, Chaz, and Roger, who at the time, I mean, everyone knew that he what he was going through uh, with the cancer. It had been going on for a while. Um, was there, I mean, was there a sense of urgency on, I may imagine, on your part, but did you sense that Chaz was eager to, for you to get involved so that sort of, what was the kind of the feeling um, from coming from her and from Roger about doing uh, this documentary at the time you were filming it? Well, I think at first Roger was, um, you know, he was a, a little bit kind of like, gee, a documentary. Um, you know, because he'd written the memoir, and the memoir was very well received, and I think he was very happy with it. And just the idea of of it being a film had never crossed his mind, maybe. And And... So, you know, he, he maybe wondered about that. Mm. You know, I, it, I had no doubts about it once I read the memoir because I just felt like it was this, uh, you know, incredibly rich story of, of an amazingly uh, uh, adventuresome <laughs> life um, yeah. that also included him becoming, you know, maybe the most significant uh, and powerful film critic in America. But... Um, you know, so but I, so I think there was some reservation at first. You know, it's funny because when I went out and tried to, when we went out and tried to initially raise money for the film from various broadcast networks, uh, some of whom I'd worked with before, the you know there there was that same actually reticence. It was almost like, yeah, I know he's famous and important, but gee, a film about a film critic, I don't know, mm. which surprised me. Uh, eventually, CNN. Uh, appreciated what we were doing and they were our first major uh funder outside of private you know investment money but but at any rate i think once roger 
and Chaz made the decision to go forward, I think it was important to Roger that um, that we document the fullness of his life. Because when I talked to them about it, I said, I want to follow you around in the in the present. I want to see your day-to-day life. I want to see you going to screenings. I want to see you uh, attending events and maybe film festivals, if you're still doing that, throwing dinner parties. You know, I wanted to really see just how active engaged life was. But that also would mean the daily, you know, uh, travails of, of the illness. Yeah. And we couldn't have anticipated then, nobody, uh, what would happen. I mean, yeah. the, the, the idea of doing this was not born of, oh, gee, Roger is uh, in his final days and we need to make this film at all. It, that actually all started to, that happened during the course of making the film, that that realization came to be. Yeah, and and to that point, um, and to the credit of Roger and 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 Chaz as well, that uh, they were not at all. Uh, they didn't seem reticent in watching the film about uh, us as a viewer uh, seeing the full ravages of of the cancer that had was was had taken his jaw and just so much of it. And at first, for anyone, I don't, I don't know what your reaction was, but at first it's a little jarring to see someone in that in that physical condition, but it doesn't take very long. And I think a lot of it's based on Roger's personality, the kind of person he is, that it doesn't really matter after a, a minute or two of once you get adjusted to the way he looks, uh, that it doesn't matter. And I and I just, it's just it's so much about him that I admire, you know, just sitting here thinking about how he's enhanced my my understanding and my appreciation of film is, is just a tremendous impact on my own life. So, But watching him, it took a little bit of time to get used to that. Yeah, and I, you know, and when I, um, I mean, I was meeting with them prior to, uh, obviously, starting production, and, and so I saw Roger that was, you know, the private Roger in the sense that it wasn't the Roger who went out to attend events, which I'd seen before, too, you know, where he was dressed very sportily, and, and he, he always wore this black turtleneck, which uh, I always thought up until I began this film was a, a fashion choice and a very stylish one. I didn't realize yeah. that it also served this function of masking the fact that there was, you know, there was a, a hole in his jaw yeah. uh, through to his neck. So when I first met with them, you know, I, I certainly noticed that and, and was taken a little aback initially. But it really didn't hit me, frankly, until the first day of filming when I walked in the room and he happened to be asleep. And when he was asleep, his jaw would hang down even further. Um, And I remember very distinctly having this sort of nervousness that, you know, I knew we were going to be filming this. um, And we did film him asleep as well as awake. And and, and I, I remember having this nervousness that this would be very hard for people to to watch, but I was really comforted by the fact, and you see this in the movie, you see this very shot in the movie, that when he woke up, um, that he, uh, and he smiled, Yeah. that it was, you know, Roger, there was that, you yes. know, that twinkle in his eye, that, that spirit that, that I think many of us uh, who admired him uh, came to love, and so... I was very much comforted by that, and I felt and hoped, and I think it's 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 happened uh, in the way you talked about it, that people would see it, uh, you'd experience it, you might be shocked by it, but that you would move on from it. Oh yeah, and again to what you said, 
his personality. It's it's Roger Ebert, and I mean it. It doesn't hurt the fact that we have known him for for you know thirty years on TV yeah. and and all. So we know we we have a we have a something to refer to in terms of our our appreciation of him as a person. But his personality does shine through in this film, uh, and and that he, the fact that he's limited in by the fact he can't really speak. He uses the computer, but. Uh, anyway, it, it's just I, I want people to understand that they're going to see him in in the later stages of his life, and it's something that you'll immediately be okay with. Don't worry about seeing that part of the film, <laughs> and then you get to see so much of this very rich history that you were able to explore, uh, going back to his days as a, a writer with the. And I'm going to it's the Sun Times or the ah, it's the Chicago the Sun Times. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I didn't want to make. Yeah, don't get that wrong, <laughs> boy. They were the Tribune and the Sun Times were arch enemies. I know, I know. I scared for a second <laughs> you're not there. A Chicago, so you're, you're forgiven. <laughs> yes, yes. We never, you know, L.A. We had the, the Times and the Herald. I mean, it was really not much of a of a contest. But uh, I know Chicago; <laughs> it's a different story. But uh, anyway, so uh, you were able to really you had access to old friends and colleagues, and uh, he he really what I so appreciate about him is that he he was a very intellectual man but he never came off as someone who was effete or or you know used this as a cudgel to beat somebody over the head with he was just a regular person when he talked to people because his love of muse, of film is so great right i mean is that how he came across to yeah you? absolutely yeah. i think he you know i mean there's a certain kind of uh, midwestern sensibility and value um that his writing uh, expressed yeah. you know which is which is to not show off uh, to to keep the adjectives to a minimum and to certainly not write down to your audience to not right um it, it's it, it is considered bad form to kind of show off how smart you are even if you're really smart like roger was mm-hmm. and um and I think he, you know, I think given his humble beginnings, uh, you know, growing up in Urbana, Illinois, his father was an electrician, his mom was a housewife and a bookkeeper, you know, uh, I think he learned that humility early on and, and, and prized his roots, and I think that extended as well into his writing. Uh, I want to remind our listeners we're speaking with uh, Steve James. He's the director of the film Life Itself. It's the story of Roger Ebert. Uh, what was it that, in, in terms of Roger's life, w- were there any surprises? Were, is there any one or two things that jump out at you as uh, as you went through this process that that surprised you about Roger? Well, there were uh, there were many things that surprised me in a way. I mean, um, you know, I, before I began this project, I, w- I was unfamiliar with um, uh, what an exciting uh, time he'd had as a bar-hopping um, uh, young newspaper man uh, falling in with all these, uh, you know, ink-stained, uh, you know, uh, Chicago classic newspaper guys yeah. um, and, and living the hard-drinking life. Uh, you know, all of that is quite entertaining, and then, of course, it resulted in Roger eventually um, enjoying himself way too much and developing... And, uh, a problem with alcoholism that he gave up, and you know, so that that was all very revealing. I mean, talking to his friends and hearing the stories about him and the way he was in the bars was really, you know, it's it's very entertaining and exciting, and and was surprising in some ways. One of the biggest surprises actually was even before that in his life, which was there's a there's a passage uh, from one of his editorials 
when he was in college that uh, his dear friend from college, Bill Knack, uh, re- has memorized <laughs> and, oh, and re- re- recites to us uh, an editorial that Roger wrote when uh, those four little girls were killed in the Birmingham bombing in the 60s, mm-hmm. famous tragic incident. And Roger just wrote this most beautiful, beautiful um, editorial for the school newspaper where he, you know, he quotes Macbeth and talks about the blood of those four innocent children is on all our hands. I mean, it's the kind of, you know, writing that you would, you would have been impressed with if it were, you know, uh, one of our finest working columnists, and here it was from a 21-year-old. Um, and I think it, it what, what I loved about that is it showed just how serious he was about journalism and how precociously talented he was. And I think that's something that he obviously brought to um, to his his work when he fell into and literally fell into being a film critic. Yeah, yeah, I I truly appreciate it. You're right. His he often used his film criticism uh, as a jumping off point too. That was another thing that I appreciated about his writing and his point of view was that he he saw the, you know film was a prism through which he saw much of the world around us. And he was able to convey yeah. that. I'm sorry. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that was a that was a feature of his writing. Um, you know, when Roger first got the job as critic at Sun Times, which was just sort of offered to him because he was a young guy. I think they saw he was talented, but it was also not a position of of you know, considered of great importance in 1967. It was considered kind of a the kind of position that. Um, you know, a number of writers would write under this, uh, this you know, generic yeah. uh, byline, um, May Tenay, which when you put it together spells matinee. Okay. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, Roger took it. He loved movies. And I think he just saw it as an opportunity to write about something he loved, but he, he wasn't under the illusion that he was incredibly knowledgeable about it. And And so what he did was, he kind of decided from the get-go that he was going to write about movies about the way they made him feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, even though over the f- almost 50 years that he continued to write movie criticism, he turned himself into quite a scholar of film. Yeah. Um, he never abandoned that principle, you know. He always wrote about the way they made him feel, and sometimes what they made him feel and think about were things that that went beyond the scope of the movie. And, and he had a deft way of bringing that in yeah. without overwhelming the review, without turning the review into a soapbox, you know, for political beliefs. Yeah, and, and to that point about learning about film, I mean, his uh, his commentary uh, uh, track on the special edition of Citizen Kane is just beautiful, wonderful, obviously, you know, thrill, thrilled, to be a part of that and uh, just brought a lot of tremendous insights. It's just one example of what he brought uh, to his to his projects. Well, yeah, you know, he did he did this thing. We we feature it a little bit, you know, uh, although there aren't examples uh, of it in practice that we could find to put in there. But what we talk about in the film, he did this thing. He used to go to this conference every year called the Conference on World Affairs out in Boulder. Yeah. He went there for forty years straight. And he created this whole yearly tradition called Cinema Interruptus, which is, of course, perfect, Roger, because he, <laughs> he, he, he had a, 
he had a love of um, earthier pleasures. Um, <laughs> and what he would do is, over the course of four or five days, they would they would go through a single film, and they certainly did Citizen Kane, um, like shot by shot, frame by frame, and talk about it. And people could contribute from the audience, hence the interruptus part. They would stop the film and talk. And, you know, Roger makes a joke in the film about how um, we stop the film and we see amazing things, uh, even though they're not there. Um, but, but truly, it was this intensive sort of analysis of film uh, and, and a given film. And, and um, yeah. people who were participants in that talk about what a revelation that was. Yeah. And also, to that end, by the way, we're speaking with Steve James, director of the film Life Itself. It comes out today here in Los Angeles uh, uh, on 4th of July. It comes out at the Santa Ana Sunflower Cinema over off of Sunflower. It's called Santa Ana Village, pardon me, on Sunflower. Also, the NoHo 7 up in North Hollywood and the Pasadena Playhouse 7. Uh, in Pasadena. Now, uh, he also championed a lot of uh, filmmakers, uh, including Martin Scorsese and others, but and you, you talk to them in the film, and I, I love that part about, that's one of the things I really loved about Roger Ebert, was how often he would continue, not just once, if he liked somebody, he brought, he made a point to make sure you understood, you know, that this was a, an important, valuable filmmaker. I love that about him. Yes, yeah, he, uh, he really was. I mean, he really did um, raise up, uh, you know, many independent filmmakers and independent film work works. I mean, I, I certainly, you know, benefited greatly myself. Yeah. I, you know, my my first film. Yeah. Uh, Roger and Gene went on their show, and you know, with Hoop Dreams and and talked about it, even though no one could see it but people at Sundance, where it was premiering. Yeah. And and they made this big push in their very initial review that this is a film that should, you know, that deserves and should get um, distribution. And, of course, it it, <laughs> it had a profound impact on that film's getting distribution. So, wow. pretty amazing. Yeah, an amazing, an amazing life. And I would be remiss, I would be a terrible... Uh, interviewer, if I didn't bring up some of the great things, the great clips that that he and and Gene Siskel share in this film, I some of the stuff was not ready for prime time airing, but uh, it was it was <laughs> such and such a joy. And you you can forget how much of an impact that the interplay between those two had on how you wanted how much you wanted to see a film it it mattered a lot to someone like myself i love gene siskel for i just love their 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 interaction tell us a little bit of just in the few minutes here that uh, about the in, the relationship that gene siskel and roger ebert had yeah well it was um i mean it's it, you, i think you have to realize that it started with both of them really kind of growing up in very different kinds of circumstances i mean gene gene Grew up in suburban uh, Chicago, in a, in a you know in a in a well-to-do suburb. Um, he went to Yale, uh, and so he you know very highly educated guy. Uh, Roger wanted to go to Ivy League, but he couldn't afford it. Uh, his parents couldn't afford to send him, so he ended up at his hometown school, University of Illinois. So you know they both make their way uh, into the newspaper business after college and. And Roger, of course, uh, befitting him, he ends up at the Sun-Times, which is the working-class paper of Chicago, especially 
well, it's still true today, but it was especially true then. You, you, you know, in certain neighborhoods, uh, you would not even see a Tribune being read. And the same held for the Tribune. The Tribune was considered the, the elite newspaper. The, it was uh, a much richer newspaper. It was called the Blue Blood newspaper. It was Republican, the, uh, and the Tribune, and the Sun-Times was Democrat. And so, you know, you have these two guys who kind of come to the come to the world with some different world views in some ways, although I don't think Gene was necessarily a dyed-in-wool Republican or anything, but that's the paper he worked for. Yeah. And then, you know, they end up at rival newspapers, rival newspaper critics, and then they end up on this show, and neither of them really wanted to work with the other. Um, <laughs> but that was the alchemy of the show. And, of course, then, you know, their, their very personalities um, and the fact that they were both whip-smart and 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 quick on their feet, um, I think, led to the show just being, you know, an incredible show, uh, incredibly entertaining, and and in its way, you know, quite quite uh, educational, especially for uh, more everyday moviegoers and young people who had an interest in film and kind of watched the show. It's it's amazing how many people, by the way, in reviews writing about the the film now that it's opening this weekend. Uh, reviewers who have commented on how that show was their first exposure to film criticism, and here they are now, film critics, years all these years later. And so, so yeah, these guys, you know, these guys. Someone told us this is not in the film that that, that when they got into it, it was like a heavyweight championship fight in which both fighters were really of equal talent. Um, and and I think that that if if there if it hadn't been that way, it wouldn't have worked. They had to be they had to respect one another, and they had to be both very capable and formidable for it to work and they were but it did lead to a great deal of antagonism between the two of them that was genuine and then over the years um in part because of a realization that their fates are intertwined in a way that benefited both of both of them they they became the first film critics to really make um uh, a lot of money and they may be the last um yeah (laughs) but but they also, I think, you know, they, they, they kind of came together and, and found a kind of connection to each other that went beyond all the vitriol and the mutual benefit. And um, in the film, we try to trace that trajectory. But it's quite entertaining. I mean, I think, it you know, really... we talked about the illness yes. earlier in the interview. Uh, I think one thing, yeah, that's good to reinforce with your listeners is, is that the film has a, a good many entertaining and very, very funny uh, moments because it was just a very entertaining story to tell. It was absolutely that, and to that point, I, 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 it's so much in the keeping of with Roger and his personality, the kind of person he was, that you would show him in all of his the physical uh, impacts of cancer the, in in the film. Of course, you would, and he would want it that way. Uh, and then also, as you just said. It, you know, not just it's just the, the, the stories of his early life and the, the, the body humor and all of that. And then it really is so refreshing to once again revisit uh, that show uh, and Gene and, and, and Roger and the way they would go at it. And I I'll tell you what, I, I'm not going to say it's the reason I'm on the air today is because of Roger and Gene, but it has a part of it. I think empowering people to want who want to talk about film to go out there and be able to, uh, you know, to to do what I'm doing here with you today is is they're a part of that or a part of one of that reason for uh, wanting my joy and my love of film 
to be able to tell their, others the, 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 about that and to share it. So I, I, right. I you know, I, I, I feel it. I watched them. I watched them forever and ever. So I'm, I'm so glad, so glad you're be be able to be a part of film school today, Steve. I'm really, really honored to have you on today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, and thanks for uh, for supporting the film. You're very welcome, Steve James, the director of this wonderful documentary about the life of Roger Ebert, life itself. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. 